Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. Over the past few years, you, me, and what seems to be the entire Western world have plunged into the oldest of all struggles, and that is over the meaning of truth. What is truth? Is it tangible? Something to be known and agreed upon, thus shared amongst many people? Or is it malleable? Is truth relative to the individual? Something only to be known, or something only a person who speaks truth to the glory of their personal narrative and lived experience? You hear that all the time on CNN and MSNBC. Now look, the answer to this question isn't very hard. Knowable, observable, and provable facts are the bedrock of sound science, which after all is a process of truth discovery. And then you have junk science, which is an entirely different animal. For the better part of a decade, an endless stream of shameful, slanderous, pseudoscientific research belched from the halls of academia and the darkened corridors of public health. With each new study, the same old rehash of claims. Vaping causes cancer, heart disease, brain damage, popcorn lung, blood disease. Vaping makes one impotent and your hair falls out and your gums recede. Vaping exposes you to dangerous metals and toxic chemicals. And as of August 2019, vaping kills, which we know courtesy of the junk science supplied by the CDC. During this time, a small cadre of scientists and public health researchers from around the world have dedicated careers to debunking bogus studies. And today on RegWatch, we're honored to have join us one of these scientists, Dr. Constantinos Farsalinos, cardiologist and research fellow from the Onassis Cardiac Surgery Center from the University of Patra in Greece. Dr. Farsalinos, thanks for coming back on RegWatch. Hello, Brad. Thank you for inviting me once again. And uh, hello to everyone uh, seeing us now live or through the recorded video. Absolutely. You know, the pleasure is all ours, Dr. Farsalinos. You know, and for our audience, a little bit of understanding. This is an anniversary of sorts over these last several weeks for RegWatch because it really marks the start of our coverage on vaping and it's been four years almost to the day since Dr. Farsalinos was first on the show which was in December 2015 and up you know RegWatch had been doing vaping coverage for about three months and while this was episode 18 of all of our RegWatch stuff it had only been the third episode we'd ever done on vaping and Dr. Farsalinos was the very first researcher we ever spoke with. So now I tell you all this to set up uh, a clip that we have from that episode, which was titled Public Panic. And so keep a listen out for anything which might sound a little familiar. Public Panic, it's the hard currency of public health research. Organizations and institutions live and die by the research grant. And the more fear they incite, the more funding comes their way. This is not a problem when researchers issue public health warnings based on unbiased studies and fairly interpreted results. However, it's a whole other matter when risks are exaggerated and conclusions are skewed to support a desired regulatory outcome. Such may be the case in the battle to ban the vape. Hardly a month goes by without another ominous headline warning of the potential hazards of vaping. These stories source studies from peer-reviewed journals and typically report verbatim the findings as fact and leave out any balancing counter-arguments. You may ask, how could there be counter-arguments in science? Well, that's because science isn't necessarily concrete. It's a process of truth-making built on competing hypotheses, methodologies, and interpretations. Essentially dueling research, and this is what we're seeing happening in the debate over vaping. 
Based on a review of anti-vaping research and interviews with stakeholders, RegulatorWatch.com has identified several common threads illuminating how research may be skewed. Often anti-vaping research is framed around children and youth when neither are targeted users for vaping. Also, toxicity levels of compounds found in e-juice and vapor are exaggerated and not placed in context. And that context is the harm reduction and massive benefit received by a smoker who switches to vaping. An ignominious example of skewed research is a study just released out of Harvard that led to numerous alarming headlines like e-cigarette flavors cause lung disease. The study tested for levels of potentially dangerous chemicals zeroing in on diacetyl, which in 2004 was summarily linked to the respiratory illness bronchiolitis obliterans, colloquially known as popcorn lung. According to Dr. Konstantinos Farsalinos, a cardiologist and internationally renowned expert on e-cigarette research, the Harvard study is guilty of creating false impressions and exaggerates the potential risk from diacetyl exposure through e-cigarettes. Dr. Farsalinos, thanks for joining us. Some background for our viewers. You are a cardiologist and researcher from the Onassis Cardiac Surgery Center and the University of Patra in Greece. You've conducted numerous research studies into the safety and behavioral use of e-cigarettes. So please tell our viewers how controversial is this topic for researchers? So the e-cigarette, as you know, is a very hot topic. It's uh, headline news everywhere. It's uh, a very controversial issue. Uh, it's an issue which is creating a lot of anger even among researchers, even among myself, when I see something that I understand is false, but it is delivered by the media to the society. Dr. Farsolinos, you mentioned the media. Are they to blame? We shouldn't blame the media. The media, of course, they like to, uh, to, to publish, you know, horror stories, but they get this information from scientists. They don't, you know, make it themselves, the, the news media. And that's really unfortunate because the major source of all this misinformation is coming from mispresentation, misinterpretation of science by the scientists themselves. Why do you think some of your colleagues are doing this? I can tell you that I've never seen in any other field of research or field of medicine such controversy and such misinterpretation, misunderstanding of what's, what's going on. Unfortunately, it's a field that I'm also seeing quite a lot of poor research being published even by very well-respected journals, which is really uh, not quite, not common. I would say it's quite uncommon to see in any other fields of medicine. Do you think some of the scientists are prejudiced against vaping? I believe that many of them are ideologically opposed to anything that looks like a cigarette, to anything that contains the term cigarette, and to anything that contains nicotine. Yes. Anything that contains nicotine. Um, so, Dr. Farsalinos, you made the point to not blame the media. Do you still hold that position? No. I've changed my position because now, um, you know, it, it, it sounded something like a prophecy that we would be discussing the same issues uh, four years later. Um, the biggest problem is that it's not the same situation. The situation today is much worse. And it's uh, completely unjustifiably worse because since 2015 we have hundreds of studies who uh, which uh, not only still support the uh, lower harm potential of e-cigarettes uh, we have today we basically have no doubt 
that they are less harmful. While in 2015, okay, there were several things that weren't studied yet, uh, or the level of evidence or the, the, the number of studies was not maybe enough to be quite certain about the level of risk reduction. I mean, uh, just by uh, knowing that the tobacco cigarette involves combustion of organic material, while the electronic cigarette does not involve combustion, is enough to understand that this is a lower risk product. But uh, in 2015, okay, we had some studies, there were not uh, uh, many uh, like we have today. But the, the problem is that the situation today in the media and the public perception about e-cigarettes is much worse today than it was uh, uh, four years ago. There is no excuse for that. This is a public health disgrace. I think that we are living in a period uh, that will be recorded in history as one of the most disgraceful periods in public health ever. And the reason is not only because of the magnitude of lies and misinformation that is prevailing, it is also because this is a subject, the electronic cigarettes and smoking is a subject that affects one billion people in the world. You know, we've had in the past uh, misinformation about drug use, uh, about HIV and uh, infectious diseases coming from HIV and AIDS, but it never concerned one billion people in the world. This is unprecedented. This is a failure of public health science. And now, it's also being, uh, the, the media are also actively involved in that. You know, at that time I told you, and I believed that, and that was my impression, um, and I still support what I said in 2015, that it was the scientists who were creating this, this, um, this uh, level of misinformation that was then uh, reproduced by the media. But now I think that the media are actively participating in that. Uh, they are, and I've seen, uh, and we're going to talk uh, hopefully later about, for example, the latest campaign by the CBC in Canada, which is basically a daily attack against vaping, which is unprecedented and completely unjustified. What they are saying are basically nothing bad about e-cigarettes, but the way they present it, they create such fear, and you need to understand all these campaigns and all this environment is killing people every day. That's what it is important. I don't care about the industry. I don't care if people are losing money. I don't care if some people have a decrease in their sales or a decrease in their profits. I don't mind at all. Uh, it is killing people. And as for the industry, if we understand and we know what the e-cigarette is and what is the role of the e-cigarette in, in public health, we need to understand that there must be an industry that is going to produce the products that are needed for public health reasons. So um, supporting the industry indirectly, because they need to be there and the products need to be there, doesn't mean that you are uh, an industry soldier. Uh, that you are uh, someone who has been recruited by the industry in order to attack other scientists or to attack the media or to create 
some kind of distraction from the truth. In reality, uh, we are hearing and we are reading every day in the media a bunch of lies. That is the truth. That's exactly what is happening today. And today it is unprecedented and it's very well organized. And it's a coordinated attack everywhere, in Asia, in Europe, in America, everywhere. So a coordinated attack worldwide. So that sounds to me that potentially that this is something that is ginned up, you know, pushed by the WHO. It would have to be, wouldn't it? And, and people who fund the WHO, most likely. Uh, I'm not going to uh, discuss about any conspiracy theories, but... It's not a coincidence that over the past few weeks we are seeing campaigns against vaping which seem to come from a, the same source because the, the way that they are campaigning is exactly the same. Um, in several countries... Oh, just uh, one second, Dr. Fersolinos, just yeah. one second. I want to make sure for our audience that we're, we're, we're talking on the same terminology here. Specifically campaign, are you talking about paid media that's out there or are, we or are you talking about PR campaigns or are you talking actually the news stories I'm or a combination of all? Everything. It's not only that. It's, 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 it's campaigns on the media, by the media. Uh, it's news stories in the way that they are presenting. But it's also something different. Uh, for example, I'm hearing that uh, there are some leaflet created by I don't know who, who are being given and circulated among uh, members of parliaments of different countries um, discussing about risks, dangers and disease, you know, uh, caused by vaping. And it's, it's really sad. Why? Because there is not a single disease today in 2019 that has been attributed to vaping. And everyone is talking about disease and death caused by electronic cigarettes. And they're not talking only about the uh, lung uh, disease epidemic in the U.S., for which we're going to have, uh, I hope, an extensive discussion uh, later uh, explaining why e-cigarettes are completely irrelevant to this epidemic. But I'm talking about discussion about kids or adults who are dying because of e-cigarettes in other countries, which we've never seen and has never been documented anywhere. What we see is some case reports, uh, isolated cases, and I'm not talking about the US epidemic, that's a different story, yeah? But we're seeing isolated cases, which you can find for any product or even any approved medication. You will find cases like that. In 10 years between 2000 and 2011, in the UK, there were reports of 200,000 adverse events from approved medications and several thousand deaths coming from approved medications. So isolated cases from use of different products uh, like, for example, allergic reactions, they can happen with everything and they do happen everywhere. But there is no disease that is caused by vaping by electronic cigarette use. Let's call that because there is also a problem with terminology nowadays. And uh, I, I, but, I well, let me, let's stop there for a second. Let's stop there for a yeah. second. Yeah. Start putting some uh, 
uh, some framing around some of the things here you talked about. You just mentioned terminology. Yeah. So, um, so I'm going to just do this right now because uh, why wait, right? Um, there seems to be a very dedicated uh, group uh, uh, from a political side, an actual ideology operating here. Do you see that? It's not a question I've ever asked you. It's not something I would have asked you four years ago. But this is not evangelical Christians running around screaming, you know, moral, you know, moral stuff. This is progressive left. This is people on the left. These are people who by most part, you know, or accept harm reduction in a lot of areas. Um, but this particular thing with nicotine, they don't. So would you agree that, that there is, you can isolate a kind of political ideal here um, that's operating? Well, I've witnessed that in the U.S. and I've witnessed that in Europe too. Because during the TPD um, um, discussions in 2013 and 2014, the strongest opposition against was coming from the socialists, which is, you know, kind of ironic because they have been very progressive in other areas of uh, harm reduction. And I don't understand why they have such a strong opposition for tobacco harm reduction, which is basically, as I said, a main reason for people who are dying today because people are going to die, not because of using cigarettes, but because of their uh, fear from what they hear and what they read um, in the media. And as a result, they relapse back to smoking. And right. this is happening every day today, everywhere. So you just actually are the first guest that we've had on ever to put the word socialist behind this. And I mean, that, I'd agree. That, when that's how we call lefts in, in, in Europe. And I'm not uh, in favor or against uh, socialists or the Democrats in the U.S. But this is exactly what happened in Europe too in 2013 and 14. And this is exactly what's happening in the U.S. right now. And I think that's very important for us to discuss because the fact is, is that we know we've seen in the U.S. the data shows that in the last, well, 10, definitely five years, there's been a growing trend. Uh, the polls and the public um, young people, pretty much, you know, in their 20s, uh, early, you know, 20s and probably in 30s, of course, you'd imagine, that are hearkening to socialism and saying that they, they've got, you know, positive thoughts about socialism. So as, as more people gravitate towards socialism in the U.S., the more panicky the U.S. has become with regard to e-cigarettes. So it, it makes you wonder whether or not is this truly panic or is this about control? which because, of course, progressives and socialists, they want to control people. And so what happens a lot is it's almost not even a matter of what the target is. It is if it's something big and can remove liberty and execute the boot on the neck of as many people as possible and get them to relinquish control, those people, that's a win for them because that unlocks their ability to exercise control in other areas too as well. And so it's some. I think for some of these people, it's not even about really um, about the vaping or the nicotine. It's just about exercising control. Okay, uh, this is quite a political debate. Uh, I have specific political views myself, but I don't think that uh, we need to express our political views here. What we need to express and what matters really is if these reactions are justified or express the truth or if they are simply lying to the public 
in order to uh, achieve any goal that someone has, whether it's political, uh, whether it's a matter of ideology, socialism versus conservatives, or it's a matter of just attracting more voters for the next elections because I'm pretending that I'm um, uh, protecting the population while in reality I'm just killing some people without protecting the rest. So I think this is why we should focus on uh, Fair enough. I mean, honestly, totally. Totally. I just to try to paint the picture of the animal that, that's there. Well, I, I, I've seen that. I've read that. Uh, you know, we, uh, people have called this environment um, uh, an environment of moral panic. <laughs> Let me tell you that it's purely immoral panic. It's not moral at all. You know, they use the moral argument, but what they're doing is really immoral. I hope they're not doing it intentionally, but you are reaching to a point where things, you know, when there is absolutely no basis for what they're saying, there is not a single piece of evidence on anything that they are saying. And you see, from political leaders to scientific societies presenting such arguments. I mean, you, you, you have to think that something is really wrong here. And that, I mean, obviously it's the big question I've got for you because in the, in the four years since, there's been a mountain of misinformation research that you specifically have gone out and I, I don't use the word debunked uh, a lot, but I did in this particular write-up. And as well, I also used junk science too, specifically. And let me just give you an opportunity to address that issue. Um, would you characterize uh, this science as junk science? Okay, I'm, I'm not going to use the term junk science because it's a bit impolite. And it's also, uh, you know, a bit insulting, I would say. Uh, what I'm going to talk about is what, in my opinion, is bad science. And I will explain why it is bad science, but I will let the viewer um, decide for him or herself whether this can be characterized as bad, the way the word I use, or as junk, the word that you use, uh, science or not. I think we should let the viewers decide for themselves after they hear arguments, however, not emotional, uh, immoral, as I called, political panic. Uh, with no evidence uh, to back it up. So we're going to talk here with arguments and scientific evidence. Right. So uh, fair enough. And uh, I'm not surprised by your position on junk science. As a journalist, let me tell you how uh, carefully I use that term because it's never been used in a single Regwatch piece before. I've, I've used it in a wipe uh, uh, as a part of a wipe where it says junk science, but never in copy actually said it, uh, never been used it in a title. In, 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 I titled a web extra once uh, and called it junk science. And before I put it up live on the air, uh, up onto the website, I changed it to activist science because, you know, I, I just couldn't, I just couldn't use it. And so yesterday when I was writing this lead and I'm, and I'm, you know, I think truth is just such an important thing that we should be talking about in terms of a concept. I just went, you know, I've got to use junk science for this. And it took me four years of covering this issue, going, getting beaten over the head with example after example of ideological science, of bad science, 
of all of these, you know, CBC, all, I mean, even just to bring up everything, you can't even possibly do that. It's an endless stream of slanderous pseudoscience and the media that goes with it. And so it took me four years before I crossed over that line to use junk science. I only wish that the reporters that have been covering this issue for however long had just a modicum of the same kind of reflection and professional approach. I stand by the use of junk science, but I make the point that it took me four years to get there to use it. So yeah. um, let's take but, a quick look. I want to clarify something that, um, to be honest, I, I don't believe and I don't want to believe that's the most important thing, that scientists are deliberately manipulating evidence, uh, studies, or studies, study methodologies in order to um, uh, come up with uh, outcome and results that are going to be really incriminating vaping for no reason. I think it is a combination of uh, incompetence because of lack of education about electronic cigarettes. We have seen that in the past repeatedly. And it doesn't matter if some scientists have been very active and very productive in tobacco uh, research. E-cigarettes are not tobacco, they are a very different thing. But I also believe that it is a very, very important issue of prejudice, which by definition, prejudice has nothing to do with science, you know. It is, we, I'm seeing, I mean, uh, cases of studies where scientists are desperately trying to prove their own predisposed views about the matter. And instead of being open-minded and do proper work with proper methodology in order to find out what's going on, you already have an opinion and you're just using the science to prove that your opinion that you had before the study is correct. Uh, this is not science. This is against the definition of science. And I think that this is what's happening. And I repeat, I'm not even suggesting that someone is doing it deliberately, but the problem is the same. So how, yeah, how do you square it? But how do you square that? So if they're not doing it deliberately, but they're doing it based on prejudice, you're yeah. saying it's hot happening subconsciously? So they are yes. skewing their yes. research. Yes. They yes. are skewing their research they're just unaware that they're doing it. Yeah, they are, uh, they are obviously influenced by their predisposition. I'm going to tell you something. Um, a couple of weeks ago, there was a study published in the European Heart Journal, and the European Society of Cardiology came out with a statement discussing about, you know, there were headline stories about this is how the electronic cigarette uh, damages your vessels, your brain, and your heart. And that was coming from the press uh, release from the European Society of Cardiology about a study published in European Heart Journal, a very highly respected journal. Uh, if you ask what they did was measure uh, uh, the vascular function before and uh, after vaping for 15 minutes. Well, if you ask any of these scientists who uh, performed the study, and any of the scientists who helped create the editorial, I'm 100% that all of them know that 
the change in vascular function after an acute intervention, after smoking or immediately after vaping, has zero, and I repeat, has zero prognostic value. It means nothing for the future risk of developing cardiovascular disease. And they know it, but because of their predisposition against electronic cigarettes, they were basically misleading themselves. It's what we call, you know, there's a term, a term for this. It's called confirmation bias. And that's exactly what it is. So it's nothing intentional. It's simply confirmation bias. I have a strong belief that something is bad. So anything I see in the literature, I consider it as a bad thing. I'm only trying to look for bad things. And I'm even misinterpreted, uh, misinterpreting evidence as being bad, while in reality it's not bad. It's happening with scientists. It's happening with journalists. But I think today, we, the, this is a period where we are seeing also intentional coordinated attacks by the media against e-cigarettes with lies, with things that mean nothing in terms of risk. And we're, we're going to present, I hope, um, in the next few minutes, several examples. I have several examples, for example, since you're just showing it, from the latest CBC campaign. It's a crusade with zero evidence, zero uh, findings in terms of problems with e-cigarettes, in terms of risk, in terms of the damage and the disease. And it's been going on for days. And every day you see a different story, which means absolutely nothing in terms of risk. It's just creating panic for the vapors for no reason. And it's also pressuring regulators. That's the yeah, key of thing. Of course, of course. It's a political issue, as you know. And uh, I've, I, 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 I've said for years that the issue of electronic cigarettes is becoming an emotional and political issue where science plays no role at all. Well, in reality, I was wrong. It plays a huge role by misinterpreting and mispresenting it so that you are presenting, they are presenting themselves as using science in order to support their argument. But it's completely wrong. And let's, let's use an example. Uh, let's use an example from the CBC. One of the many articles that they have released uh, over the last several days, which is, which is exactly what you're showing now. The vaping liquids in Canada that contain potentially harmful chemicals. So, I suppose your readers have seen about pulegon and benzaldehyde. Could be dangerous to human health. This is false. Simply, it is false. Bo the statement about both compounds is false. End of story. And I'll explain to you why it is false. It is false. Please do. Absolutely. Pulegon, pulegon is a natural compound found in mint and menthol extracts. The FDA did not ban the use of pulegon. They banned the intentional addition of pulegon as a pure chemical. 
So if you buy it synthetically uh, from 2020, the decision was in 2018, but they gave a two-year period for the implementation, uh, they uh, said that you will not be able to use uh, pure legon in synthetic form. What the FDA is saying is that, and I will quote from what you are showing right now, that the FDA's recent exposure assessment of Pulegon does not indicate that it poses a risk to public health. The FDA is revoking the listing of Pulegon and five other synthetic flavorings as a matter of law. The FDA has concluded that these substances, Pulegon and five more substances, are otherwise safe. And also, they are not banning the chemical when it is coming from a natural extract. They mention this clearly. So, banning the use of purified synthetic pulegon is a legal issue that has nothing to do with science and with real risk for, 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 for people. That's what the FDA is saying. Now, yeah. let's talk about the second chemical. Sure. Benzaldehyde. Amazing. So benzaldehyde is toxic for inhalation. Well, benzaldehyde is not classified for toxicity when inhaled. There is no hazard classification for benzaldehyde. First of all, you know what benzaldehyde is? Benzaldehyde is the bitter almond flavor. Anything that you smell as bitter almond is always, always benzaldehyde, nothing else. Benzaldehyde is an approved food flavoring. It is an approved uh, additive for fragrances. It is approved, I repeat, it is an approved chemical. It's not a toxin. Benzaldehyde and now listen to this, benzaldehyde, which is an approved flavoring agent for using food products, has in reality one classification, a toxicity classification for ingestion, for ingestion, for eating it. Now, someone would ask, why and how can it be possible that a chemical which is approved for use in food products is at the same time toxic when ingested. Well, because in medicine and in toxicology, when you classify a toxin, you also de define the limit, the concentration limit above which it is toxic. And the concentration limit of benzaldehyde is 25%, which means that you must have a product that contains 25% of benzaldehyde or more in order to be classified as a toxin. I can reassure you, you will not be able to ingest anything that contains 25% benzaldehyde. The smell and the flavor is so intense that it is uh, indigestible. It, it is impossible to eat it. So let's, it, let's pull, sorry, let's pull. No, inedible. that's okay. That's okay. It's good. The details are things that obviously no, need, no, no, need no. to be. No, no, no. I need to explain something more, which is even more interesting. 
Okay. No, but, and, but, and but, and wait, but wait for a second, right. though. Let me ask you a question, which I'm sure yeah. your answer will work out, work into here. Let me just make sure I'm asking this question. This mm -hmm. is the question CBC asked. So, quote, those flavors weren't, were meant to be eaten, not to be inhaled. And basically, yeah. that is the main question we have right now. Are they safe to be inhaled? Like, can you safely inhale these flavors? So you can frame your, the rest of your answer. Okay. But by uh, answering that question for us directly. Benzaldehyde is a, is, a, is a compound that is used for the smell it provides. You're not going to be able to basically taste the bitter almond. You, you're going to smell it, basically. But I will explain also that. There have been studies for inhala of inhalation of benzaldehyde. And benzaldehyde has been officially classified as a... And I will, uh, I'm just looking at it right now because I want to be absolutely accurate. It has a classification as a specific target organ toxicity category 3 for lung inhalation. You know what category 3 means? And I will read the definition of category 3 specific target organ toxicity. It says this category only includes respiratory tract irritation in parenthesis sore throat cough. These effects, while adversely altering human function, are of short duration after exposure and do not result in significant alterations of structure or function following recovery. Which means that these are transient, mild effects that will have no long-term clinical effects, will not cause disease. Now, someone might say, that yes, but e-cigarette is something that you use every day, repeatedly every day, you take many puffs, yes, you take 500, 300, 600 puffs per day, over a daily inhalation of about, you take about 17 to 20,000 breaths, so it's not continuous exposure, it is daily exposure, but it's not continuous exposure throughout your breath. Of course, we have always said that there is some uncertainty over the long-term risk of using these compounds um, uh, repeatedly, continuously, every day. But this is exactly the reason why we're saying that electronic cigarettes are not 100% safe and there may be some residual risk compared to not using anything. But the way that the, the, the story is presented by CBC, I mean, if the worst thing that they found in the, in the Canadian liquid is this two chemicals whoa 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 cbc just decided to uh as soon as you started talking about cbc there your audio went off hold on one oh, second yeah, yeah. okay <laughs> uh, something's happened yeah something has just happened literally one sec there's an there is an echo that just started one second that is so strange yeah i i, I started hearing myself you know I got it. I got I it. I got right it. Now. Okay, so let me just, let, we're going to pick this up here. I got an edit point. One second. All right, so. So the way that the CBC presented this story uh, appeared to be, you know, it appeared that there is a disaster happening with Canadian liquids. I can reassure you that if the worst thing that CBC found in Canadian e-liquids is pulegon and benzaldehyde, then 
Canadian vapors should celebrate for having excellent quality uh, in liquids. Let me ask you this question, and let's bring this up here uh, a moment, a thousand feet, because I am going to be taking uh, some small chunks uh, from this video out. So I'd like to, you know, put this in, in the language for, say, people who, you know, seriously have only just had exposure to what CBC and other media outlets have said. So let me ask you, Dr. Fosterlinos, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation here, our national broadcaster, as you've said and know quite well, and all of our viewers do, has been executing basically a strategic campaign to destroy vaping in this country, certainly to destroy public perception of vaping. And um, they've come out and, and basically said that vaping is not safe. One of the things that they've gone to task on is the flavors and made the point that flavors are not safe to be inhaled. And it's the same kind of stuff that, you know, has been said uh, for years now about vaping. In your professional opinion, as a medical doctor and as a researcher who's been studying this issue and the ingredients that go into e-liquid, are they safe to be inhaled? Um. Uh, the term safe uh, refers to absolute safety. As I've said repeatedly, first of all, I've never heard of any scientist, uh, even the strongest supporter for e-cigarettes, suggesting that uh, the use of electronic cigarettes is absolutely safe. That's why we recommend electronic cigarettes as uh, harm reduction tools. For yeah, smoke. let me just interrupt you there, because, you know, it's been four years and it's only gotten worse. And, and I push back on you great researchers, because at some point you should fight that battle, because that... That, that issue is why we're still stuck in this uh, point, because it doesn't make help at all with mainstream media for equivocation like that, because then, you know, you're saying, okay, well, so then we'll believe the other people who are, they are certain it's not safe. And then when you ask people who, who research va vaping and you bring up the word safe, it's just this long equivocation and I can't use the soundbite and neither could CBC uh, if they chose to do that. So I'm just wondering, I mean, this is a serious question. At this point, there's so few researchers left that still support vaping in any kind of manner. When you get asked a question, is it safe? I mean, I can, how can- I can comment on what the CBC said about their findings uh, when they uh, sent for testing some Canadian liquids. If this is the worst thing that they found, Hulegon and benzaldehyde, then the Canadian vapors should be happy for having excellent quality liquids. If these are their worst findings that they decided to present in, in the article that was published one or two days, three days ago, I don't remember exactly when, then Canadian vapors should be very happy for having excellent quality liquids. Benzaldehyde is an approved flavoring and the levels present in e-cigarettes do not pose any threat, right. uh, any concern in terms of health. Pulegon is a natural compound that is accepted to be used when coming from a natural extract. The FDA accepts the presence of Pulegon when coming from a natural extract. So if you're using a mental or menthol flavor containing a natural extract, Hulegon may probably be there, and that's legal to be there. So then, the next thing then, as you know, you've experienced this. Okay, fair enough, we'll take you on that, but then what about uh, diacetyl? Okay, that's another story, which, as you know, I was the first one who published a study about diacetyl. I was the first one, it was published in 2014. We performed the analysis on 159 liquids 
from all over the world, Europe, uh, US, Canada, China, we found levels of diacetyl uh, in many of the liquids. Uh, it was present. We criticized that, but we, we are still, after several other studies, after my study that were, were published, uh, it is still, my study is still, since 2014, the only study that mentioned the word smoking in the text, the only study that compared the levels of diacetyl in e-cigarettes with the levels of diacetyl in tobacco cigarette smoke, and the only study that reported that the levels we found in e-cigarettes were 100 times, so two orders of magnitude lower than the levels present in tobacco cigarette smoke. Over the next few years after our study, there were other studies who measured diacetyl in e-liquids. They found levels lower than what we reported back in 2014. And hopefully the industry uh, took care of this issue. We haven't done any follow-up study, but I hope that they have resolved this issue. We'll see. Uh, we probably need to repeat the study. But they found lower levels, and they didn't even mention the word smoking in the text. They didn't mention that tobacco cigarettes contain huge amounts of diacetyl. So even if we accept and we assume that today e-liquids contain diacetyl, the levels are much lower than tobacco cigarette smoke. So e-cigarettes are, even, even with that assumption, still a perfect harm reduction product. The reason why we criticized the industry uh, because of our findings of diacetyl in e-liquids is because it is a perfectly avoidable risk it, so it doesn't matter if it's lower than smoking because it is very easy and cheap for the industry to get rid of diacetyl completely and make the product even safer than it currently is. So if you can make a product even safer than it is without spending millions or billions, I fully support the need to do it. And this is why we criticized it. We called it an avoidable risk. And you need to understand, in tobacco cigarettes, it's not an avoidable risk because most of diacetyl in tobacco cigarette smoke is not coming from evaporation of an ingredient, a flavoring that you add into the cigarette. It's coming from combustion. So you cannot avoid it. In these cigarettes, it's perfectly avoidable. So the only criticism that you can discuss, uh, you can uh, uh, mention concerning e-cigarettes and diacetyl is a bad choice of the industry and not uh, to criminalize the electronic cigarette because of diacetyl, because you can simply avoid it. But I'm going to come back and uh, expand on that. Sure. Just one and second, because let me yes. put the industry point of view in there, and there is one, and that is... Um, that is, there is a cost to, to switching out that because it appears that it is still, it, 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 it presents the best flavor profile 
for what the, for that flavor, that that base ingredients that's needed. And from what I understand, the substitutes for it are not as good as the original. So there is some market forces there that are operating. I I, I fully agree with you that diacetyl creates a very interesting and nice flavor. And I find this argument completely unacceptable. End of story. It is completely unacceptable and no one should use diacetyl. I think it is pure stupidity for any manufacturer to intentionally add diacetyl in their liquids because of the better flavoring. And I think it's irresponsible not to test the flavoring compounds that they're using for the presence of diacetyl. I will never accept the argument of the flavoring. Uh, making it the flavor better is in no way an excuse to add diacetyl to the liquids. End of story. So then, obviously, I would imagine then, you know, the story that we've had happen in Canada, which just came out a couple of weeks back, which uh, you can see there. And as it goes, did a Canadian teen get popcorn lung from vaping e-juice? And of course, the popcorn you know lung. Okay, that's, that's a very interesting story. So I was watching live the uh, press conference held by Dr. Chris McKee and some of his colleagues at the hospital discussing about the case that they had in London, Ontario, uh, of a, a patient, uh, 17 years old, who uh, had a very serious lung condition because of his cigarettes. Over the next few, few days, Dr. McKee clarified that no THC use was involved in this case. So the, the patient reported that he was not using TH, THC sorry, with, the, with the liquid. Well, a few days ago, the case report of this patient was published in the Canadian Medical Association Journal, and they mentioned that he was using concentrating flavors uh, frequently mixed with THC, so the admitted THC use. However, they insisted that the story and the case is about popcorn lung, which was once again, a speculation because they mentioned we postulate that it is uh, bronchiolitis obliterans without knowing if there is any diacetyl in the liquids, if he was inhaling compounds that are associated with popcorn lung disease, but they were so convinced that it's not THC, that there must be something else and popcorn lung disease is the obvious um, uh, uh, culprit. Now, let me tell you something that I'm going to say publicly for the first time. A few hours after the uh, press conference, a few hours, just a few hours after the press conference, I received a request from a Canadian retailer to send me some liquids for chemical analysis. And interestingly enough, I received requests to check for oils in the liquids and for diacetyl and acetylpropionyl, which are implicated in popcorn lung disease. At that time, I didn't link this request to the uh, case report. Okay, it happened a few hours later, but 
It was a bit strange because it came from a Canadian retailer who has never contacted me in the past. We were never basically contacted by uh, any Canadian company uh, to do testing for liquids and so on. Uh, they never asked me for any advice or anything ever. But it was a bit strange that they were asking for things that, okay, for oils, we knew that the U.S. cases, many of the cases in the U.S. were associated with lipoid pneumonia. Uh, and uh, they knew, of course, obviously, about the issue of diacetyl and acetylpropyl and the possibility to cause bronchiolitis obliterans, although we haven't seen any case from e-cigarette use today, even today. And I can reassure you that the case that they are presenting is basically the same, uh, is like the cases that appeared in the U.S. So this, uh, so, so we're just looking. Yeah, we're just looking here at the uh, CMA. Yes, 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 yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. So just, just clear. Uh, let me just the press release. The press release is interesting, but the press release has nothing to do with what they mentioned in the study because in the study they mentioned that it's pure speculation and not an, a definite diagnosis. And they also said that there is no. They didn't even know if there is any chemical associated with popcorn lung disease in the liquids. Well, so let I me can tell you. But I can tell you that in the liquids that we tested, and I strongly suspect that they are the liquids associated with this case, because it, the, we, we were contacted few hours after the case was presented in, a press, uh, in the press conference. And we now saw, I now saw the uh, case report in uh, CMA. CMAJ uh, about a supposedly popcorn lung disease. And we were asked to test oils and diacetyl. I can tell you that for nine of the 11 liquids, because we have two more to test, we haven't tested them, but nine of the 11 liquids that were sent to us, and as I said, I suspect that they are linked to this case, contain zero diacetyl or levels that are in two, in two liquids, the levels that were found were hundreds of times lower than tobacco cigarette smoke and much lower than the average levels that we found in my study five years ago, which means that, uh, of course, uh, excluding the two liquids which we haven't tested yet, it is impossible, simply, it is simply impossible for the patient to have popcorn lung disease, at least according to the results, the nine of the 11 liquids that were tested. If we assume, and I have a strong suspicion about that, if we assume that these are liquids which were implicated in this case, and I can and I explained to you how the whole communication came out and why I strongly suspect that these are the liquids linked with this uh, patient. Now, of course, as you understand, any documentation about this patient is um, uh, con confidential. So we, we cannot and we don't have access to any documentation. But what I'm going to do is send an email to Health Canada 
because Health Canada is also responsible for this speculation, which is in reality a, an unacceptable misinformation and mispresentation of evidence. And so I'm going to send an email to Health Canada. I'm not going to ask for any confidential information about the patient, but I'm going to give them the names of the liquids and I'm going to ask them to verify if these are the liquids linked or reported to be used by the patient who has already been presented in the case report. Yeah, it's crucial. If Health Canada wants to be transparent, if Health Canada wants to responsibly inform the public, they will have to respond by either denying that these are the liquids used by the patient or by verifying whether the liquids are used by the patient because so just to put purpose, a point just to put a point to it because the purpose is for us to publish the data we want to publish the data because we believe in transparency we believe that the public not only in canada globally and the scientific community globally must have the data available so, we Dr. Fasolinos, you've got to put a, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to, you've, when you, you lay all that out, that's great. That's fantastic, right? And then I'm giving you a little media advice here. You've got to then loop back and then return it back in a nice tight format from, from, from top to bottom. So, so people who might not have picked up the very first part of that 10 minutes ago at the end, and you're making that huge point, you, you've got to loop that back, right? So you've got to, you've got to, you've got to deliver that back to me in a point. And so basically you're saying then that the e-liquids that may be involved and implicated in this case, um, you've had, you've been, You've got access to them, you've tested them, and they don't have the offending substance in there. And you're just wanting to make sure that you can get that confirmed with Health Canada that you are actually testing the liquids that are involved in this case. Yes, I need to clarify. I didn't right. receive information that the liquids were about this case, but I received the request to uh, test some liquids for specific things which are linked to all the US and the Canadian case. So uh, we were discussing about oils in uh, THC liquids. We were discussing about lung disease. So we were asked to test for oils and for diacetyl and for acetylpropionyl uh, just a few hours after the press conference presenting the Canadian case. And we were asked by a Canadian company. So I'm saying I have a very serious reason to believe that these liquids are linked to this case. I don't have documentation to prove it, but because the, the only option that we have as scientists is to be transparent and to release all the data to the public and to the scientific community, I hope Health Canada has the same views. So I'm going to ask Health Canada to either confirm or deny that these liquids, I'm going to send them the list with the names, are have been reported to be used by the patient. This is in no way a breach of patient confidentiality. 
it does not expose any information about the patient, but the scientific community and the public deserve to know what these liquids contain if these liquids were used by the patient. Now, and then, and if that is the case, then the physicians should take back their speculation in the published case report that this was a case of popcorn lung disease. And you've got high hopes for that. <laughs> Listen, uh, I don't, I, I'm, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, it's a very responsible agency. If they want to maintain this environment of speculation, misinformation, uh, uh, this crusade against the cigarettes for no reason and with no evidence at all, with postulated diagnosis, because that's exactly the word that they use, we postulate that this was a case of bronchiolitis obliterans with no evidence on the exposure factors, no evidence on the diagnosis itself. They didn't do a, a, an open lung biopsy, which is the main diagnostic method of uh, determining that the patient has bronchiolitis obliterans. So if they want to keep informing the public based on speculations and based on possible um, uh, personal opinions or anything else like that and keep this environment of terror and intimidation against vapors for no real proven reason, then you have to think what the role of Health Canada is. I'm, so I'm to, date, to, to, to date, to date, Dr. Farsalinos, Health Canada has not come out to clarify anything. They haven't, yeah. they haven't come out strongly at all. In fact, the majority of hysteria, I would tell you this right now. Well, let me tell you something. Well, well, hold on, hold on, hold on for a second. This is, this is, this yeah. there's two people on this show, okay? Yeah. All right. So, Health Canada has a responsibility, and they haven't been meeting that. And you would think that health, one of Health Canada's responsibility would be talking to the national broadcaster and advising them that perhaps the hit job that they're doing on vaping isn't appropriate for public health. No, I'm, I'm not willing to suggest that, uh, that Health Canada is a part of this crusade or campaign against the cigarettes for a simple reason. It is possible that Health Canada has not completed the testings that they want to do uh, in the uh, products implicated to this case report. So I'm not suggesting that, they're, that they know the results and they're hiding them. But when someone tells them that these are the liquids that I received, and I didn't receive the information that it was coming from uh, this patient, but, you know, some things raise a lot of suspicion. Um, you know, it, it makes it very likely that they are linked with this case. And I'm telling them, I don't want to know anything about the patient. I don't want to know any information about the case that may identify directly or indirectly the patient. I just want you to tell me if these liquids with these names and with these flavorings were reported to be used by the patient. You know, I'm a clinician. I am pretty well aware of patient confidentiality. And of course, I support it. So I'm not willing to violate these laws, written or unwritten laws about patient confidentiality. I only want Health Canada 
to tell me if these are the liquids reported by the patient. And I'm not going to keep the results for myself. I'm not doing it because I want to be informed out of curiosity or whatever. I believe in transparency in research. I believe that any information you have needs to be published. It doesn't matter if it's good for vaping or bad for vaping. My diacetyl study in 2014 was a very bad study, but I published every single number that we got. So we want to get verification by the Health Canada. And if that is the case, we want to publish the results. Health Canada should be eager to know the results if they don't have any, any, any results yet. Should ask for the results. We are not asking to be paid. We are not asking for money. We just want to release the information publicly. But we cannot publish the study unless we have verification that these were the liquids that uh, were used by the patient. Otherwise, you know, I cannot write a study and send it for publication, for review, based on, you know, uh, possibilities or a strong suspicion that they that it is coming from this patient. I need verification. And as I said, of course, I know that I cannot have access to the file of the patient. But Health Canada can simply respond by saying, yes, these are the liquids reported to be used by the patient, or no, these are not the liquids that the patient reported he, he or she was using. It's as simple as no problems with patient confidentiality. Well, yeah, I, I hear you. Good luck. I mean, obviously keep us posted on how that goes because, okay. I mean, Health Canada has not been, um, has not been on then, the, at the well, forefront here of, of trying to t clamp down on the hysteria. And that's the concern because, of course, it's the same thing that happened in the U.S. And I'd like to talk about the U.S. in a second here on the CDC. But first... I want to remind everybody to go to regulatorwatch.com, our, our support website, which is at support.regulatorwatch.com, and uh, take a look around and decide whether or not if you can give us a little bit of help. I just found out from our good friend Bill Tarling that Dragon Vape uh, on YouTube just kicked us a few bucks. Thanks a lot. And uh, if there's anybody else, I'll find out too as well. And of course, our anchor supporters, Flavor Art and Demand Vape and Stealth and Juno. Uh, fantastic companies, and then our monthly rock stars, which are great. And I keep saying, you guys, we've got some room here to, to throw some people here. But look, our supporters are fantastic. Um, certainly, with the industry getting hit so hard, we're downstream. Um, so if you can find a few dollars, one time is great. Um, and if you can do monthly, that's even, even better. And for you Americans out there, we love your greenbacks. So if you get a chance, please do. Uh, support.regulatorwatch.com. And so, Dr. Fersalino, so I want to ask you about the lung disease issue. So when that thing hit, we immediately had, um, we had Dr. Pelosa on that first week uh, that it really became national news, which was August 23rd. And he was a bit stunned by it. You know, not, not stunned like in a bad way, just, you know, just this is, how could this be even possible? And it's just, you know, been got so worse, you know, than that first week. So in your mind, and this is a tough question, but in your mind, do you think that CDC's inaction 
it's dragging its feet in terms of connecting the illicit black market THC cartridges with the lung illness. Their inability, it seems, to do that for months. Do you think that they caused further illness and maybe death as a result of dragging their feet? I think that the, the, the case of the reaction of the CDC to the lung disease outbreak in the U.S. is another typical case of what I called uh, earlier confirmation bias. I couldn't believe that knowing that 80% or more of the patients who were recorded uh, in this outbreak were reporting use of THC oils, I couldn't believe that this was not good enough for the CDC to implicate THC oils to this epidemic. It was unbelievable. It was really unbelievable. I'll tell you a simple example. Uh, just before this outbreak, there was an outbreak of salmonella poisoning from um, uh, household poultry uh, that um, resulted in about, I think, 270 hospitalizations and two deaths, 1,000 cases in total. Well, less than 80% of people who, who, who were ill reported any contact with household uh, poultry. But still, that was good enough for the CDC to, uh, to report that this was an epidemic caused by household poultry. Uh, one or two years ago, there was an epidemic of pneumonia, several cases, uh, Legionnaire's disease, that's how it's called, uh, because of contact with a contaminated swimming pool. Well, 70% of people who got ill reported that they came into, in contact with the swimming pool, they swam or they went there, closed that. Still, that was good enough for the CDC to declare that this was an epidemic of a pneumonia caused by contaminated swimming pool. Why? Because in epidemiology, you can never have 100% of cases fully, uh, I mean, documented that they came into contact with a, with a culprit. It never happens. But 80% of THC use, I mean, use of THC by 80% of patients, and now it's even more, was not good enough by the CDC. So the CDC was releasing information in press releases saying that, you know, there is a lot of THC use, but avoid all kinds of cigarettes. It may be nicotine cigarettes, it may be THC liquids, it may be a combination or anything else, whatever. Well, the, the FDA was much stronger and they came out much earlier with the recommendation not to use THC liquid for vaping. The CDC was very late. Of course, now they have admitted that already, but they came very late. This was used by the media in another crusade against the cigarettes. The result is that today, the US population, in the US population, more people believe that vaping nicotine is harmful than those who believe that THC vaping is harmful. 
It's not only that. We are seeing a huge confusion with the terminology that the CDC used. They called this disease a value, e-cigarette or vaping associated lung illness. This is, I'll be polite, a completely inappropriate term because people know that electronic cigarettes are the nicotine-containing used nicotine-containing products that are used as substitutes for smoking. No one who is vaping THC considers him or herself an e-cigarette user. They are just people who use THC. And they well, are city, not city, city, the, as e-cigarette users. The CDC themselves, up until that point, had defined e-cigarettes perfectly, and it never, ever, ever included THC. Of course. You know, I can get and inhale gasoline, you know, and I can easily use a battery uh, to, which generates current through electricity, and I can very easily create a, an atomizer, a tank system, where I'm going to evaporate anything I want, you know. But this is not any cigarette. Even adding to that, you know, all the black market products that were confiscated, they were all uh, coming in pre-filled atomizers. You know, th there were no bulk THC oils that were sold to be used in conventional atomizers used in e-cigarettes. And I need to clarify, it is more than obvious that THC oils are the cause of the lung disease epidemic and the cause for the disease in the Canadian case, which is not popcorn lung disease. But we need to uh, explain to people that it's not the THC itself, I mean the compound, tetrahydrocannabinol, that causes the disease. Because THC has been inhaled through dry vaporizers or through... Uh, smoking joints for years, for decades, and there were no lung disease outbreaks. So for, even when you use it in an atomizer and you evaporate THC oil, it is obvious that it's not THC the cause of a disease, but some solvents or additives or thickening agents that were used in these black market THC oils. But so, it's not definitely, it definitely is not an e-cigarette. So the term used for this disease is by definition a mistake because it's not an e-cigarette. You say mistake. How could they make a mistake? It, it looks like they've purposefully been doing this. Well, I'm telling you, it's a typical case in my opinion because I'm not going to, I'm never going to say that the CDC is intentionally misleading or lying to the American public. I'm, I'm saying that this is a typical case of confirmation bias by an agency which has repeatedly expressed their views that e-cigarette is a bad thing and only a bad thing. And an agency that repeatedly does not accept benefits that we are seeing on a population level coming from e-cigarettes. I mean, you're so about, isn't that isn't that affording isn't that affording the agency though a quite 
you know, a great deal of deference in this particular instance because it, it seems pretty clear that either they were doing this on purpose or they're incompetent. Either As one I of said, them. Confirmation bias, you know, is something that you're not doing. You're not doing it intentionally or consciously, but it's something that affects your scientific judgment. So and then, I but that's all. But no, I'm looking put it to you then, though. Okay, listen, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm one single scientist, right? Who went on the media and in presentations in conferences since September, telling everyone that it is impossible that e-cigarettes, meaning nicotine-containing products, are the reason for this disease. And you didn't even need to know the information about THC to say that. Because there are some very simple and easy to understand for medical students, not for established scientists, epidemiological principles. When you have products that have been used for 10 years all over the world and never caused any outbreak of lung disease until today, and suddenly you have only in one country, only in the past three, four months, a cases, an outbreak of lung disease, while at the same time, the same nicotine liquids, the same cigarette liquids are used all over the world without any outbreak in any other country. This is the end of the story in implicating nicotine cigarettes, e-liquids in the disease. You already know that it's not the case. You don't need any information about THC. The only possibility that may exist is that there was a change in the composition of nicotine liquids very recently, only in the US, and you know pretty well that US liquids are also sold outside the US, so there must be some very local products. The only possibility to implicate nicotine liquids was that some products which are only sold in the US recently were either very recently being produced, so there were new products coming into the market, or there was a, a significant change in the compos composition of these liquids very recently, so they introduced something new which was not there in, in liquids over the past several years, and that was the reason that caused the disease in the US. So you didn't even need to know the information about THC. The strange thing is that they knew and they reported the information of, about THC from the beginning. And now the American public doesn't understand that THC vaping is dangerous. Everyone believes that nicotine vaping is dangerous. And the knee-jerk reactions from the regulators discussing about flavor bans, banning the sales of these products, this is an outrageous reaction and decision which is dangerous for public health. It is dangerous for public health. It is a campaign and reactions that are killing those vapors who relapse to smoking and they are killing those smokers who were thinking of using e-cigarettes as smoking substitutes and of course they are so afraid of using e-cigarettes that they will prefer to continue to smoke. Yeah, 
Yeah, and that's the real tragedy, isn't it? No, for certain. Exactly. A very nice Greek word. Yeah, well, Dr. Farsalinos, I don't think that there's a really a happy way that uh, we can end the show, but uh, I think we're pretty close to, you know, talking it out. Is there any research that you're working on uh, that our audience should know about to, to keep in mind is because, you know, they're looking for lifeboats, you know, they're waiting for life, something to get thrown their way. So, I mean, is there anything down coming down the pipe? Yes, we have several studies. We have a study discussing about e-cigarette use by youth, which is currently under review. We have a study about the association between electronic cigarette use and uh, being a former smoker and smoking cessation in Europe, because last year a study by uh, some U.S. scientists um, reported that e-cigarettes prevent smoking cessation in the European Union. Yeah. Well, we have some very interesting results that are going to be available very soon, in the next few days. The study is already accepted, we've done everything, so it's gonna be released in the next few days. Uh, as I said, the youth epidemic, uh, there is already a study out there uh, questioning that there is an epidemic of uh, US youth, uh, use of uh, e-cigarettes by US youth. Oh, in uh, we, your opinion, is there? Let's just be, handle that for a moment. No. Is there an epidemic of youth use? Listen, listen, listen. Um, I still find it strange that no one is discussing in the U.S. about U.S. adolescents being today a smoke-free generation. You know what is the rate of past 30 days smoking among U.S. youth in 2019? It is 4.3% any smoking in the past 30 days, including one puff. It is 4.3%. Daily smoking is probably, they haven't reported the numbers, but it's probably less than 1%. So we are talking about a smoke-free generation. This represents a 70%, at least 70% decrease in smoking rates from 2010 to 2019. So during the period of growing use of electronic cigarettes by U.S. adolescents, the smoking rates have been reduced by 60 or 70 percent. We're waiting to see the exact numbers. But this is interesting because, first of all, the argument that e-cigarettes are a getaway to smoking is completely destroyed because you are seeing unprecedented reduction in smoking rates during the period of growing popularity of electronic cigarettes in this popula use in this population. Uh, it, the, the reduction in smoking rates is unprecedented, so there is no getaway effect. Also, use of e-cigarettes, let's say current use, which is defined as any past 30-day use, it means nothing. We need to look at frequent vaping, regular vaping, which is, in my opinion, daily, or to be even more conservative, at least 20 of the past 30 days. You know, no one is going to get any disease. The risk is already minimal for daily users. But I can reassure you, no one is going to die from using electronic cigarettes once a week, once a month, once every two weeks, 
uh, five days of the month and so on. No one ever. So what we need to look is frequent use. Uh, the data that I have analyzed of 2018, uh, because the 2019 data have not been released publicly yet. No one has access to the, to the data set besides the CDC. <clears throat> but the 2018 data set that we do have, we found that frequent vaping is extremely rare among never smoking youth. The vast majority of youth who are using e-cigarettes frequently uh, have a positive history of smoking. They are either current smokers or former smokers. <coughs> the rate of daily use of e-cigarettes among never smokers, never smoking youth, is 0.48%. 0.48, so let's say 0.5. 0.5% of never smoking youth are using e-cigarettes daily in the U.S. This is yeah. CDC National Youth Tobacco Survey. It's not my data. I didn't collect the data. I just downloaded the CDC data set. Yeah, that's the issue of already at-risk youth are the ones that are doing most of the vaping. Um, but this is, uh, if someone has a history of using tobacco cigarettes, then it is very likely that electronic cigarettes will, uh, will um, uh, act as a distraction from smoking. So what we need to look for if we want to see the, the level of risk in uh, adolescents is look at electronic cigarette use among people who have never smoked. Still, that doesn't mean that all of these people would have never smoked if e-cigarettes were not available. Still, even when you look at e-cigarette use among never-smoking youth, you need to understand that it is possible that some of these kids may have become tobacco cigarette users if electronic cigarettes didn't exist. So, uh, and I believe that all the getaway theory is uh, completely unsubstantiated. The model that explains the behavior and the association between e-cigarette use at baseline and using tobacco cigarettes at follow-up is a very simple common liability model. People, doesn't matter if it's kids or adults, who are prone uh, or are more willing to engage in risky behaviors will, of course, try different things. And the first choice is going to be the cheaper option, the, op the product that they can get easier access to, the product that can be hidden more easily, the product that doesn't smell as bad as smoking, which is, has a characteristic smell, the product that you can hide from your social environment or from your um, uh, family environment easier. So there is no real, real question why e-cigarette use may be the first choice. Of course, let me clarify. We don't want kids, youth to use electronic cigarettes. There is no reason to think of electronic cigarettes as a trendy habit, a safe product for everyone that anyone can use. We need to implement restrictions and bans on the sale to youth. But what's happening in the US is that 
they are punishing and killing smokers because they are unable to implement the law which dictates that you are not allowed to sell electronic cigarettes to people under the age of 18. They have failed to implement the law and they are now punishing smokers because of that. Because the solutions that they are considering, flavor bans, uh, restriction on sales, or ban on the sales, is punishing smokers. And it's even questionable if they are protecting youth, because they will just create a black market. And you saw what happened with the uncontrolled black market of THC oils. And this is another story. Who has allowed the black market of THC products to flourish and to be so huge without any control, without any policy? Who is responsible for that? No one has answered. They are confiscating. They are confiscating thousands of pre-filled atomizers with THC oils, black market products with no control, no quality uh, criteria, nothing. And no one has taken responsibility for allowing the existence of this huge and largely uncontrolled black market of THC. And not only that, instead of blaming this, they're blaming the nicotine cigarettes. This is unheard of. I mean, this is unprecedented. We are talking about loss of any common sense. Yeah, those are two words that uh, are in very short supply when it comes to this issue. That is certain. Well, Dr. Farsalinos, thank you so much for joining us today. I feel like we've, you know, really dug into this issue. Um, I do want to make sure, though, that if there was anything else that you're working on, because we dived into uh, the youth use uh, data there, and I want to make sure, was there there anything else you wanted to mention? And maybe just in this last... Uh, Look look at the discrepancy between the importance of some studies uh, and the way the media present selectively only some of the studies and not the rest. I have published uh, about 80 studies on tobacco harm reduction in electronic cigarettes. It is extremely rare for any media to ever cover any of my studies. But this year, I was named a highly cited researcher, which is an award that is given to the top 0.1% of scientists from 21 scientific fields, not from medicine, not from tobacco harm reduction. We're talking about 21 scientific fields, medicine, public health, uh, engineering, mathematics, all of them the top 0.1 scientists with the most impactful citations by others of their work. It's, it's very important. They don't measure how many studies you publish. They measure how many people cite your studies in other publications and how important that is. So over the last 10 years, I was one of the 6,200 scientists from 21 fields out of a total of 9 million scientists who were analyzed. 
These are the top 0.1% of scientists with the highest global scientific impact over the last decade, from 2008 to 2018. So, my studies have almost never been covered by the media, but it's been used by the whole scientific society uh, and community to a level that got me up to the top 0.1% of researchers. So I'm not saying that just to praise myself. I'm saying that, that I'm saying that in order to, for people to understand that what they read in the media has nothing to do of what the science is saying and what's the impact of this real science and what the science is really saying about electronic cigarettes. Because you will never get a conclusion about something just because of one study, and it doesn't even matter how important the study is. You should always look at the whole picture and not cherry pick, which is the usual habit and the new trend with the media and with some regulators and scientists. But when you look at the whole picture, and that should be our conclusion, there is absolutely no doubt that electronic cigarettes are by far less harmful than smoking, and I would say that the Public Health England estimates that they are 95% less harmful are probably too conservative, and they may be even less harmful than that. They may have an even lower than 5% residual risk compared to smoking. Like the latest study about cardiovascular disease. Everyone is discussing about cardiovascular disease, and the only true study that examined vascular function in people when they are smokers and then they, when, when they switch and become vapors, they found that you get an improvement in vascular function in only four weeks after switching from smoking to electronic cigarettes. This is a breakthrough. This is a landmark study. And no one is discussing about it. No one is discussing about a landmark study saying that when you make the switch, you get an improvement which has strong prognostic value for future development of disease in four weeks. In four weeks. This is unbelievable. There is no cover in the media about that. Even vapors themselves, they don't know it. They don't know the benefit. Because, let's be honest, when you discuss with a smoker about electronic cigarettes, the only thing that you should tell them is about the benefits of switching to electronic cigarettes, not about any harm. The smoker needs to know that the best option is to quit by yourself. The second best option is to use approved medications and smoking cessation services. And if you can't do it, by this, or you don't want to quit by yourself or with medications, the third best option is to use electronic cigarettes and harm reduction products. And you should explain to them the benefits of switching, not theoretical uh, harms that are coming from no real scientific evidence. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you said it best, that's for sure. So, well, Dr. Forsolinos, thank you so much for coming on. It, it was thank really you. enlightening. 
to get Thank into you. that. And I certainly I know a lot of our viewers are, are got a love hate relationship when it comes to science uh, because it seems to bite bite you on the butt quite a bit. Uh, but obviously the the science that's out there that you can trust that you know that has been. I mean, because look, bad science. I mean. Bad science is, that's why I use junk to separate it from bad, because to me, bad news is bad science, right? Like, you know, when you have bad news science, that's maybe it's come out and maybe there's some real truth to it. You never know, right? So you have to be open-minded when it comes to uh, the science that you're looking at. It just, it just makes it so difficult to trust the science that's out there that's attacking vaping because there's just so much of it. And it just Listen, seems, you know, so it, driven by ideology. Simple, you know. Science is everything about replication. What I was doing, and you called it debunking studies. I'm not, I'm not debunking anything. I'm just replicating studies. When I see a study that I know that the results don't make sense, or I, I've done testing myself and I know that these are not the results, the real results, and you're just doing a replication. So I was accused by Bloomberg, the Bloomberg News, uh, in, a, in an article that was basically uh, discussing about me, that I'm trying to kill the reputation or attack other scientists, while in reality what I'm doing is the what science is about. It is about replication. And I never have any intention of attacking or discrediting, discrediting anyone, but replication is top priority in science and basically everything in science is proven only through replication. So he was accusing me, the journalist, of replicating studies which were bad. And I was wrong uh, because I shouldn't replicate bad studies. I should just let them uh, present results that have nothing to do with reality, that have nothing to do with what a vapor inhales. And they thought that that's okay, because it's against vaping. I mean, this is unheard of. I was attacked, I was battered because of that. Well, I will continue doing that, if I can do it. Because sometimes, you know, there's a lot of money involved, and my funding is very, very limited. And unfortunately, I cannot go and ask for money from the industry because I will immediately be targeted oh, as yeah, that wouldn't work, an no. industry, you know, <laughs> uh, soldier. I mean, already Bloomberg implied that myself and some others are just soldiers recruited by the tobacco industry to attack other scientists. I mean, what a ridiculous argument. I didn't even comment on that. I mean, what a ridiculous uh, uh, argument coming from nowhere just because some people have a different opinion and I must say the right opinion based on evidence about what the cigarette, the cigarette really is. Yeah, well that's a well-worn tactic, no doubt. Well you keep out there fighting, that's uh, exactly what the industry is hoping for and you're right, don't take a dollar either from the industry otherwise you're no good to the industry. Yeah, I, know, I, know, yeah. I know what's going to happen. I know what's yeah. going to happen. I know that they're not, you know, even now they are questioning my research, but they've never questioned any of my results, any of my methodologies, nothing. They're just saying that, oh, he's in favor of e-cigarettes, so most likely he's an industry uh, uh, soldier. Well, well, that's the tactic, I mean, right? I mean, let's be honest. I'm a vapor myself. 
So my only personal benefit is to know everything about electronic cigarettes. And my personal priority as, as a user is to know what's wrong if something is wrong about electronic cigarettes because I will protect myself, first of all, as a, as a person, my own health. I mean, everything else is pure nonsense, simply. Yeah, well, there you go. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Farsalinos. We really Thanks, appreciate sir. it. And just hang tight there one second. So that is it for this edition of RegWatch. Before you head off, please go to support.regulatorwatch.com, take a look around, dig your hand in your wallet there and pull out a few bucks and toss them our way. You will certainly feel better for it. We will too. And uh, while you're online, definitely make sure you follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. And that's it for this edition of Reg Watch. I'm Brent Stafford, and vape them if you got them. <laughs>